0: It is such an immense joy for me to be here with you to to share in this amazing text that we see in Genesis chapter 1 to sing these songs. Wow, how can you not be moved singing uh, those great hymns that we just sang to our Lord and to hear him now speaking to us and revealing himself to us. One of the things that we talked about yesterday is that in the book of Genesis as we begin, you know, God starts the Bible, with the creation account, with his nature revealed, as Paul says, his nature not only manifests to us in nature as we see all that he made, but then revealed specifically to us, as the Hebrew writer points out, by faith we know that the universe, the worlds were made, were framed by the word of God. God tells us how he made all of these things, and so he's given us special revelation of himself. In Genesis chapter 1, we meet God. We met him for the first time, really, in verse 2, as spirit. God is spirit. God is hovering over the face of the waters. We talked about the importance of recognizing God's spirit nature if we're going to worship him properly. We can't worship him as though he were a man, trying to give him gifts that would appease a man. We can't worship him as though he were fashioned by man's devising, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, so he are wood or stone or some form of art that we bow down before this idol. He is so much more. He is so much beyond. He's eternal. We talked about that from the very first verse. He was there before the beginning. He has no end. He's spirit in every sense. And his spirit, his spirit nature, means that what he wants really is a relationship with that part of us That also is beyond just the physical. And so we've got to learn who he is so we can know how properly to approach him. So in Genesis chapter 1, as we'll be going through today, we're looking at the nature of God. We'll be in just a moment reading from verse 6 through verse 25. Not all at once, but we'll break it up and look at that. We'll see God in his nature. And later today we'll look at the nature of man as we go on from Genesis 1.26 through chapter 2.7. That is the plan for today at least. We'll see the nature of man as God makes him and then as he puts him in the garden in our look tomorrow starting at chapter 2 verse 8. And then we'll see the problem that comes, the nature of sin as we look at Genesis chapter 3 and then what sin does to the world on Monday night as we look at at a world ravaged by sin in Genesis chapter 4. And the first Four chapters of Genesis, we have these foundations. Who is God? Who am I? What is sin? And what does sin do? And in those, we get a glimpse of God's plan and how he's going to to take care of the problem. that we find out that we are the ones who brought on in Genesis chapter 3. That's sort of our outline for these next few days. Thank you so much for being willing to come. We are going to try to stay more in the text now. Last night's lesson was sort of setting up the need for going back to the text here. Today we're going to spend a lot more time in the actual text. So I invite you to open to Genesis chapter 1 with me. We'll begin reading here verses 6 through 13. As we got through the first five verses, we've learned about God's eternal nature. We've learned about his spirit nature. We've seen these three issues that he's going to be dealing with through this this week of creation. There is the formlessness or the chaos. There is the void or emptiness. And there is darkness. And we've actually already seen him speak light into the darkness and take care of that that first or that last issue in the order here, but the first one that he deals with, as he then separated light from darkness and called the light day and the darkness night, and there were evening and morning. So now let's pick up in verse 6. We're going to watch as he works on the formlessness and the emptiness. This is God's power in creation. Verses 6 through 13. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So we've seen two more days of this creation week. Again, God begins all of this by speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Here God speaks again he says, let there be a firmament. Some of your versions have the word expanse. I like that better, actually. I was telling uh, Jim this morning, I'm reading from the New King James. I'm actually switching over in my own reading to the English standard and the New American standard. They handle the translation a little bit better, but I'm used to the New King James, and so I'm going to stick with it today, for today's lesson at least. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. So there's this expanse that's between waters, And it's going to do something, verse 6. It's going to divide waters from waters. Again, there's a better word than divide. Some of your versions will have the word separate. And that's actually the word that's being used here. Divide has a negative connotation, at least in our English. It sounds like you're, you're making things worse. You're separating things in a bad way. But to separate, to make things distinct, that's what God does. And it's the root of the concept of holiness, God, by his holy nature, he is so separate from us, will actually make the things that he's creating to have a separate and distinct function. And we'll see that over and over again, right down to, we'll see in chapter 2, the function of male and female. (laughs) There's a distinction made, and God made that distinction. But here, it's a distinction as he separates waters from waters. And it's interesting, when we look at verse 7, what waters is he separating here? I'm asking these as questions, and feel free to answer. I want this to sort of be open. Uh, this is the way I would study this at somebody's table. So if I ask a question, feel free to answer it. This is not the same as a sermon on Sunday. So if you if you want to answer, feel free to do that. So what is what kind of waters are being separated in verse 7 there? Waters below. From what waters? <laughs> some waters below, and some waters then where? <laughs> Above. And it says... From the waters above, the waters which are above the expanse. This is kind of strange. This expanse we find in verse 8 is what? What's the word he uses to call it? Heaven in some versions. Really the word here means sky. Let's talk about that for just a second because that's kind of confusing. Is it heaven or is it sky? Yes, (laughs) The, the Hebrews word for heaven, and the, and, the, and the Portuguese, they do the same thing. We sort of do this in English, but not as much. We've got more distinct words. But the Hebrews are really a language poor. Uh, it's really a language poor language, if you will. It's a word poor language. And so they'll recycle things. You may have heard the phrase holy, holy, holy. <laughs> we would say holy, holier, and holiest, but they would say holy, holy, holy or holy, holy. They're, they're using the same word again to repeat for emphasis. We just tack on an ending that means it's more than that, and it's the most of that. So they do that with the word heaven as well. So you've got heaven, which by itself just means sky. When you talk about the heavens, which we do that sometimes, we're talking about outer space, And then when they talk about the heaven of heavens, they're talking about a spiritual sort of realm. That's where God and and the, the spiritual celestial beings are. So this heaven, in the singular sense, and the New King James actually got this right here, just means the blue sky. But it's saying there's water below and water above the blue sky. How is there water above the blue sky? What in the world is that? Thank you. It's pretty easy when you think about it, but at first it sounds confusing. How can there be water above? These are clouds. In fact, God is reserving these clouds up there for some special purpose he has in mind. We'll find out about that in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. There's a flood that's going to happen, and all that water is up there for a purpose. Peter talks about that, by the way. He says the world that then was was reserved under judgment under (laughs) water. The world that is now is reserved under judgment by fire. But he's talking about this reservation of water. God had put that there, this cloud cover that's completely there. And God has now separated or divided these two types of water, the water above and the water below. And so he names those, he separates them, names them, calls the firmament heaven or sky, and that's all he does. Evening and morning, the second day. There's an important thing that he's already established here. Science would call this the water cycle. We see that happening already here. There's light and warmth, because the light that God has created here also brings warmth. We sang about that, actually, in the the song from Francis of Assisi there. And so there's the light and the warmth that come in, and the waters that are below are evaporating and creating these waters above. God is establishing something that is absolutely essential for human and plant life, (laughs) this water cycle. God has, has made that in two days. He is not explaining this scientifically. This is not a science book. But he is relating things in a way that science ought to be able to go back and examine and discover. And that's exactly what we find. There is no discrepancy between science. Science is observational, by the way. Science looks at things, sees how they work, and then starts to make hypotheses about how this might continue to work. Occasionally, we see things wrong, don't we? <laughs> if I can't see all the way around the corner, I might see part of something and think, hey, I know what that is. And then when I can see the rest of it, oh, (laughs) that's not what I thought it was. That happens all the time. And science is observational. The problem with scientists is they think they see it all, they claim to know it all without having seen the rest. (laughs) And so they make these astronomical claims without really having all the information they need. We need to humble ourselves even as scientists. The great scientists, Isaac Newton, Einstein, all of these guys saw science as a way to understand God better. They didn't see it as a way to reject God. That's where people came behind them and thought, we know more than God now. In the, in the 1970s, the headline in the New York Times, God is dead. We've got science now. We don't need God anymore. That was something those, those old backwoods people needed. That's not true. Real science will recognize that God is the creator. We're the observers. And that's the best we can do. But God has given us lots of information that will help us if we'll pay attention while we're looking at our science. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into this idea of the seed being within the animal and the plant. We'll talk about that, that concept in a little bit. So there's evening and morning, the second day, God has made this water cycle. He's created an atmosphere. That's what this blue sky really is. It's an atmosphere, it's a biosphere. Life can happen now in a physical sense. Now, God didn't do all this for himself. He didn't need these things. He was in existence before any of this was. And yet he's created this place that's perfectly suited for physical carbon-based life. Verse 9. And then he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Again, I think the New King James got the idea right. These waters are under the heavens, there's water underneath the heaven, that's the blue sky, and also, from our vantage point looking up, there's more heavens out there. So we would say, looking at it from where Moses and the, and the Israelites are standing as they're learning this story, they're looking through the heavens, and there's waters all around them here. Those are being divided. Those are being separated. So he's talking about the seas that he's created and this dry land that appears, and this is a, uh, a singular kind of word, Science will say, well, there was Pangea, and the Bible doesn't talk about Pangea, so the Bible must be wrong. Well, I think the Bible does talk about Pangea. I would disagree with science about why Pangea no longer exists. I think Genesis 6 through 9 explains really well why Pangea no longer exists, but I can look at the coast of Africa and the coast of Brazil, and they fit together pretty nicely. There is a consistent geological line from the Appalachians all the way up through England and into Scotland, where those used to fit together perfectly. There's things that are undeniable about observational science. The question is, how did they get from where they were to where they are now? I think the Bible handles that. But science says it it must have taken way longer than the Bible gives us credit for. We can talk about that at some other time. I don't have time to get into all that today. But I want you to understand that when I was an atheist coming to faith, those questions were important to me. When someone showed me there is another possibility besides the evolutionary and geologic timescale that's in all of our science books, that was important. I began to think about, okay, so let's set that aside for just a moment and see if the Bible can answer these same questions. And what I found was over and over, overwhelmingly, it answers them better. There's still a lot of questions on the scientific timetable that I think the Bible responds very well. And so we need to give that a, a fair read. So, Let the waters be gathered together into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God names then the dry land, calling it earth, and the gathering of the waters he calls seas. Again, some people may have a, a discrepancy with that. You know, there's all these waters around, but it's really just one body of water. Well, it is if you look at the globe, it's just one body of water, but don't we call it the Pacific Ocean, and the Atlantic Ocean, and the Indian Ocean? and what? I mean, it's all connected. God called it seas. Seas are named regionally. We don't even call the the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias or Lake of Tiberias. Now, those names, you see it changing even as you look at your maps in the Bible from time to time. Seas and local areas of water are named by the people who live there. They give significance to those names. Then other people learn those, and that's what they call them for a few generations. Then a while, they're changed again. Sometimes they last longer than others. But God just sort of said all of those waters are going to be the seas. Depending on where you live, you'll know it by a different name. But God gave this generic term to it. And again, we see that God, as he observes all this, he saw that it was good. All of this is kind of interesting. What do we see God doing with this uh, formlessness? (laughs) He's giving it order. (laughs) Even the water cycle, that's orderly. We can always expect it to do that. Water's going to evaporate, it's going to get heavy, it's going to rain down. It's going to evaporate, it's going to get heavy, it's going to rain down. That's a water cycle. We can trace the water cycle. We can even sort of calculate when it might rain somewhere because of how much evaporation has happened and how much the water temperature and air temperature are. We can sort of figure out when rain's coming. Not always exactly, but we got an idea. Science sometimes gets it wrong, right? We're observing. But we can calculate, we can guess. That's because God set up Order. And we see that kind of order. And then when we get to verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass. Now, on the part that's dry, and really even under the waters, we'll find out later, he is starting to produce living things. This is an herb that yields seed, and a fruit tree that yields fruit. And all of this is according to its kind. It has its seed in itself. It can generate The next generation, that's where that word comes from. You can make the next generation of itself. And it was so, because God said that that's the way it should be. I want you to pay attention to this law that he establishes here. It's interesting that in verse 11 and verse 12, it's almost repetitive. It's after its own kind. It's after its own kind. The fruit after its own kind. The seed in itself after its own kind. Why would God be so repetitive all of a sudden? He's establishing a law pay attention to that law because it's so important we're going to see it again. God is efficient. We should expect efficiency from intelligence. When I mess things up and do it wrong and then do it wrong again and do it wrong again and do it wrong again, I'm showing that I'm not as intelligent as I ought to be. When I get it right and I do that again and again and again, I'm showing, hey, that was pretty intelligent. That thing works. I'm going to keep doing it that way. God over and over shows intelligent design, When we see things that look the same all over, and we see them in all different areas similar, but they're set up to do the same thing, then we ought to be expecting, that's intelligent design. That's not random chance that made all of these similar patterns happen. There is a, a group, I don't think they're funded anymore by NASA, but for a while they had government funding. They're called SETI, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they were training radio telescopes out into space, and they were listening for patterns. They wanted to hear a distinct pattern. And what they began to hear were pulsars and quasars and these sort of radio waves that were coming back from space, but they determined they were too regular to be the sign of someone communicating. What they determined was those were just the sounds of stars pulsating, that's why they call them pulsars. They were having radio uh, emissions coming from this light emanating from the stars. And they thought, no, that's too regular. It's actually a pattern. It's it's an intelligently designed pattern. God designed that. But what they wanted was something more like, there was a movie a few years back called Contact, where all of a sudden they get a signal that's all the prime numbers in sequence. All the prime numbers only. That means somebody's thinking, and they're sending a message. Where do prime numbers come from? They're just random chance. (laughs) I would say somebody was thinking, (laughs) who organized what we call mathematics, which we discovered, by the way, organized the mathematics behind what we call music, which we discovered, by the way, we didn't invent that. We manipulate it. We move it around. We use those, those octaves to our advantage and we use math to our advantage, but we discovered it. We didn't invent it. We're scientists making discoveries of something that was created by an intelligent mind that had design and order in place. He has taken what was without form and put very good form into it. And as we begin to look at things that are organized and orderly, we ought to think, somebody made that. <laughs> the old argument from William, uh, William Paley about finding the watch in the middle of the, of the woods. You know, if you find a watch in the, of the woods, you don't think, oh, look what the woods have, have just coughed up randomly here. Somebody dropped that there. Somebody made it, and then it got lost and left behind That's not something just naturally occurring. There's an intelligent mind that had to put all of those little pieces of that watch together to make it do what it's doing. And that same person can then look in the mirror and look at his eyeball and think, look what just randomly happened. My eyeball just appeared. No. There's so much just in the one human eye that debunks so many theories of, of evolution because it all had to happen at the exact same time or the eyeball wouldn't work. It would just be impossible. And so the same person that can look at a watch and say, somebody must have made that, and then look at the eye and say, look what randomly happened. As Paul would say in Romans 1, they're without excuse. God has manifest himself by the beauty and the power and the form of creation. And somebody can look at his creation and say, look what random chance did. My kids hear me say that a lot. We'll watch a sunset or something. I'll say, isn't it amazing what evolution can produce? Obviously not. It's a joke. Look what God has made. A good friend of mine, a brother who unfortunately has fallen away, I was walking with him one evening and we were talking, I kept talking and realized I was talking to myself, and turned around and he's staring off at the sky and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just looking at what my father made for me. Such a beautiful sentiment, that gorgeous sunset. That's glorifying God. And he, recognizing that he's the one who's made all of these things. We'll talk about that still in a little bit. So let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself, and it was so. And it did it, verse 12. The earth did that, the fruit tree did that, the herb did that, and God saw that it was good. The evening and the morning were the third day. Did you notice what God did there in verses 11 and 12 while I was talking about order? He was also filling the void with all these beautiful plants. (laughs) There's something frustrating, we all felt it, about living in a city, (laughs) some of us more than others. You get out of the city and you put your feet in the grass, and you touch the trees and you realize this is what's meant to be here. We made the cities, we made these walls. I tell my kids sometimes, we spend so much time even thinking about God, we're closed into these four walls that men have made. If we'll just go sit out in the backyard in the grass and think about God, and pray, and feel the nature that's all around us, then we'll understand them a little bit more. If we'll spend more time looking at the stars and looking at the sunsets instead of looking down through a telescope or looking down through a microscope, don't look down through a telescope. If you're looking down through a microscope uh, or looking into a Petri dish, you can see him there. But be out among the things that he's made and put all around us. That's where your mind will open up and you'll, you'll start seeing him more. God put all that there and he just filled that emptiness with plants right now. He's not done yet. The next text we're going to read, verses 14 through 19, is my favorite part of Genesis 1. I think we see purpose in this next text, and I want you to consider that what God is doing here has two things in mind. He's going to be filling in form. He's also going to be filling in emptiness. We're going to see both of those at work in this this text here. So look with me at 14 through 19. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth Day. <laughs> this is a text that I struggled with when I when I first came to the Lord. I was scientifically minded. I was thinking about uh, this concept of how did light get to Earth? If I know that the Andromeda galaxy it's the closest galaxy I can see with the naked eye, or the furthest thing I can see with the naked eye, it's two billion light year two million light years away. I was an astronomer for a short time, and so that's when you can see with the naked eye, but it may not even be there anymore. It took two million years for that light to get here, so who knows? So. I thought the Bible had a problem. I and mean, people who teach that the Bible shows the earth is only a few thousand years old because that light took two million years to get here. So this earth has to be at least two million years old, right? Probably older since there's other stuff out there. But then I began to read in Isaiah and other places where it talks about God making the heavens. And the first thing we need to remember is God already made the light. He's just now making the physical sources of light. The light was already here. <laughs> Isaiah 48 verse uh, 13 says, He stretched the heavens. And that's a term that's used all over in the prophets. The light was here, God pulled it out to a distance, and he can do that as much as he wants, as far as he wants. The light's still going to have already been here since the beginning. It may take two million years now as fast as light travels to get here, but it doesn't mean it took that long to get here at first. It was already here. The light was here before the sources physically were here, because God is actually the source of the light. And so there's not as big an issue as I once thought as I look at things that way. But God made these lights in the firmament of the heavens. So if we're standing again on earth, looking up into the heavens, we know they're not really in the biodome. There's this, the flat earth movement has started to say that the heavenly lights and the sun and moon are all in the biodome and they're just moving around in there. That's not what God's saying here. They're in the heavens. They're visible through this heaven into the outer second rim of heavens, the outer space heavens. They're out there and God has put them there. And why has he put them there, according to verse 14? I ask this question often in this study. Why has God put the lights out there? Signs and seasons. seasons. Thank you. I have not expected less when studying with people who have the habit of reading the Bible. Almost everybody else doesn't see the word signs. Even people that I know love to talk about signs, they skip right over it, and they go to the seasons. And I bring them back. And I say, no, let's talk about signs for a second. Because that's the first thing mentioned here. He has put them up there to divide day from night, but he already did that. Remember that back in in, uh, verse 4? He divided light from darkness. Verse 5, he he called the light day and the darkness night. He's already done that. And yet it mentions it again here. And I want to first ask, why say it again? (laughs) Why mention that again? And that's going to be a hanging question. Leave it back there for now. We're going back to it. But then let's talk about the, the purposes. Let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. What is a sign? If I ask that question, what do you think of? What's a sign? What? It's Absolutely. A sign is something that you notice. It's something that's obvious. It's something meant to be seen that will direct you. Thank you. That's a great definition. Most of the time people say, signs are miracles. (laughs) Yes, but let's turn that around. Miracles are signs, not signs are miracles. Not all signs are miracles. A stop sign, there's no miracle there. (laughs) But I know what it's telling me to do. A green light, that's not a miracle. (laughs) Some miracles, all miracles, are signs. But a sign directs you to something. It points you. something. That's the purpose of a sign. The longer word is signal. That's what we use when we talk about a turn signal. It indicates to the person behind me, turn in one way or another, unless I've been driving for 45 miles with it on, that's something else. Indicates something else about myself. Uh, Anyway, the signs indicate something. They point to something. And so God says he's put these lights up there to indicate something. Did David have something to say about that in Psalm 19 yesterday? You remember my paraphrasing of David's writing, Psalm 19? Somebody made me! That's what the sun is saying as he runs across the sky every single day and then goes around and comes back and does it again. Somebody with order in mind made me. And I'm just going to keep doing this until I burn out or until the Lord comes back. Somebody made me. All those cosmos, those orderly constellations and stars that follow the same patterns and you can count the seasons and the years by them, It's because God's put this astronomical clock up there. Somebody made me. That's the sign. God put them up there for signs. There's something else that God will do using these signs, and he'll make that a little more clear in verse 16. He made two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night, and he made the stars also. So how in the world does the sun rule the day? Or govern is really the word here. How does the, the, the moon govern the night? It does define it, yes. So, again, God already did that, didn't he, back in verse 5? So why do it again? Keep that question back here. We're coming back to it. But thank you for that. How else? All right, forget we have electricity. <laughs> How important are the sun and moon? source of light so we can see that what did jesus say about the day when he's when he's healing a blind man in john chapter 9 yeah we got we must work while it's day the night's coming when no one can work why not well there's no light there is now but in jesus day there is no light at night you couldn't work by a lamp or a candle and then burn out eventually that the foolish virgins figured that out unfortunately so We have the the sun that governs our ability to work during the day. And the moon is there because there's things that need to be done at night, occasionally. We've got the moon to govern that kind of work. But they sort of govern in that sense, and God put them there for that. God is showing that there is order even in darkness of night. (laughs) That there is the light of the stars and the light of the moon there. When Jesus talks about hell, how does he describe hell? Thank you. Most of the time it's fire and brimstone, But just as much, it's outer darkness. There's no light there. There's no semblance of God's government in hell. That's what makes it hell. It is absolute chaos and destruction and darkness. It's outer darkness. It's where there is no light whatsoever. And yet, the revelation description of the relationship with the Lord in heaven, what's the description? There's no night there. The Lamb is its light. There's no need for sun or moon or stars because the Lamb is its light. There's someone brighter than the sun here. Now, when you think about God using the sun, the moon, and the stars as signs in that sense, what does he say sometimes about days of judgment? Think about Joel chapter two, for example, that's so poorly uh, uh, understood. Or Matthew 24, when he talks about coming in judgment against the Jews and destroying the temple. Does he not say the sun will refuse to give its light and the stars will not shine, they'll fall from the sky. That is all figurative language describing judgment. What would make the sun look like it had just not given its light anymore? (laughs) It could be that darkness is coming, that night has come, but that's not really the, the point. There is a star that you can see during the daytime in a city in Brazil. Most of the stars you can't see during the daytime. Sometimes I'll ask the question this way, are there any stars out right now? And a lot of people say, no. (laughs) Yes, there are. (laughs) You can't see them (laughs) because the sun is so much brighter. But there is a star in this town in Brazil that at midday, you can still see that star. (laughs) It's amazing how bright that star is. But most of them are gone because the sun's out. They're there. They're just gone from our sight. What would make it so that the sun would not be visible? (laughs) A greater light than the sun. The lamb is its light. When he comes in judgment against the Jewish nation, the sun refuses to give its light. That's the images we get in Isaiah and Joel and the other prophets when they talk about judgment because God, in his great glory, with the glory of his angels, as Jesus will say, comes in judgment and all the other lights are ashamed to shine. That's a beautiful image. God says he put those things up there so later he could use them as symbols. And he does that all through the language of the Old Testament and then into the New as Jesus speaks in the language of the Old Testament and the New. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? God's telling us about that here. Now, certainly, there are physical signs as well. There's the seasons and the days and the years. Those are all mentioned here. But I want us to understand that signs aren't always miracles. Sometimes they're just physical things that God has put there that indicate his presence, his glory, and his nature have been manifest to us by the creation. And now we know a little more about it because he tells us exactly what he meant. So they're there for signs, seasons, days, and... And years. I want you to think about that for a moment now. Seasons and days and years. Those are in essence signs. Those are counting mechanisms as well. They're all pointing to order and to the one who made the order. Who uses seasons and days and years? Who uses signs? Who reads signs? Man does. How many men existed when God put those lights up there? Nine. This is why this is my, my head's starting to cringle up in the back here. When I think about God's order and his planning, he hasn't made a single person yet. But you know, the very first day of Adam and Eve's existence, they looked up and saw sun, moon, and stars. <laughs> they saw all the signs of the existence of their creator, who, by the way, in the cool of the evening, came to walk with them in the garden. But they saw all of this. There was never a day where they didn't have that beauty there, reminding them of who he was and what he had done for them. When God made this physical universe, he was thinking of man. That's why he made the water cycle. That's why he made dry land. That's why he put all the plants there. That's why he filled the emptiness of heaven. Can you imagine looking up at night and it's just black as far as you can see? It's already daunting to look up and see stars as deep as you can see. But can you imagine if there was nothing there? But there's something there. There's a reminder of God being the source of light, and there's lots of reminders of God being the source of light. Again, hell, that's outer darkness. There's no light whatsoever. Even on the darkest night here, there's light. There's a vestige of God's presence in the most dire of times. You know how I know that to be sure? You ever heard of a man named Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus who became Paul, who was shipwrecked four times? He talks about three of them in 2 Corinthians 11, and the fourth we read about in Acts chapter 28, after they had spent 14 days in the middle of the sea with no sun and no moon and no stars to navigate by. Can you imagine the despair? Luke says, we threw all the tackle overboard. We despaired of our lives. Luke was on that boat with him as he's writing that, that, that account in Acts 28. And yet, Paul comes before the men and says, fear not, this night, the God whom I serve sent his angel to tell me, We're all going to survive. Paul had light in the darkness as God was revealing his will. And he said, you're all going to make it with me if you just do what he says. Eat some of this bread, throw the rest stuff over. And once we run aground, everybody get in the water. (laughs) It is kind of amazing that however many people, I can't remember the number now. It's an amazing number. They all were saved by obeying the apostle and getting in the water. (laughs) Sounds kind of familiar to the gospel story. There is a gospel happening on the ship. As it's going down, none of them can save themselves, but if they'll listen to the apostles' instruction to get in the water, they'll all be saved. And they were. God is using that as signs pointing to Himself. It shouldn't be astonishing then later on. Since he says he's going to use the sun to rule and the moon to rule, it shouldn't be astonishing when in some of the language of the Old Testament prophets, he speaks of rulers as though they were stars. There's a famous one called Lucifer. (laughs) That's not talking about Satan, by the way. If you read the context, we're talking about the king of Tyre and Sidon in one and the king of Babylon in another. Those are the two texts that are often used to talk about describing Satan as a star that fell from the sky. That's not the text I would use to speak of that. Revelation 12 would speak that way a bit. But not those texts in Ezekiel and Isaiah. They're speaking of earthly rulers that were lifted up from the earth as though they were stars. Lucifer would be the morning star. We would call it Venus. But that's what they would see off to the horizon as they're looking in the direction of Babylon. And God's saying, see that star over there that's risen so high? King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm gonna put his light out. That's what God's talking about in those passages, because He's using stars as symbols, and over and over He uses that idea. God's thinking of us when He does all of that. He's thinking of Adam and Eve. But he's thinking of you and me, and it just makes my head cringe up when I think about how beautiful God's plan was. That all those millennia ago, centuries ago, He's thinking of me. And I can look up and see that same sun that Adam and Eve saw. The same moon that they saw. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw. He is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. And I can see the same signs that he gave to them. What a beautiful thing to consider. The evening and the morning were the fourth day. But hold on a second. (laughs) He just now made the sun and the moon. So how long were those first three days? (laughs) And here's where you get these questions that come in. Are we talking about millennia there? Are we talking about these epochs? in which there was all of this death and decay and disorder and these things growing up and evolution happened. And then finally, God made the sun, the moon, and the Wait a second. (laughs) That can't be right. The sun, the moon, and the stars were there during all these epochs, right? I mean, surely. So this fourth day when he does this and the light was there, and how do we count these? He's using the same expression to describe a day, evening and morning. (laughs) On the fourth day when there's sun and moon that can count 24 hours for us, The same expression that he used on the other three days. I think biblically, he's indicating these are literal 24-hour days. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And we'll see that another time through here at least. God is describing things in the way that we understand them. He wants us to understand what he's done, and so he uses our language. But he's not embellishing anything here. This is what happened. Jesus, later on, talks about God making the earth in six literal days. (laughs) This is not something that's up for debate, biblically speaking. It's something that men who have tried to cower to science have decided they have to do to make it fit with the scientific timescale. God doesn't have to worry about the scientific timescale. He's going to do things his way. Science needs to observe and make sure they're being careful about their observations. Let's look at 20 to 25 to finish out this first part of the text today. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw, that it was good. So, in that last text, I asked you to think about why, if God already did this, did He do it again? <laughs> and now we see when He makes the animals, both days that He's making animals, He uses a same law again, <laughs> one that He already used when He created the seed in the herbs and in the fruit trees and in the grass after its kind. If you were paying attention, how many times did He say according to its kind? from verse 20 through verse 25, did you notice? If you had to guess, how many times would you say? Seven. Isn't that incredible? Why say something seven times? (laughs) Because God thinks that's important. If he says it once, is it true? Absolutely. If he says it twice, is he emphasizing something? Sure. If he says it three times, you better pay close attention. If he says it seven, it's no other way. (laughs) That's what it is. God according to their kind, made all of the animals. And he said it seven times. (laughs) When he made the plants, he said it two or three times. But this is seven more times. Why do that? He wants to impress upon us his order and his creation. The Levitical laws in chapter 19 and 20 will talk about not letting your animals breed together. Don't mix up your animals. And don't grow your, your crops in the same field. Don't wear two different types of clothing. All of those are reminders that God separated each thing into its kind. Cotton is cotton. Uh, linen is linen. Wool is wool. Sheep are sheep. Horses are horses. Camels are camels. Don't mix them all together. Because I want you to understand the concept of holiness. That's what Leviticus is teaching, by the way. That's the concept over and over and over. So the the mother in Israel with her little children as they walk through the field can say, all of this is barley because God made barley according to its kind. All of this is wheat because God made wheat according to its kind. And then she can say, all of these are cows because God made cows according to their kind. And all of these are sheep because God made sheep according to their kind. Look at the object lessons over and over and over that Israel has to understand holiness, things that are separated into distinct categories. God gave them those lessons and he started teaching them right here, over and over and over. Why do things twice? (laughs) Well, I mentioned the separation of day and night a second time here when you put the stars up there. Again, he's thinking of us. He did it for himself the first time. He made those distinctions for himself. Now he's made it so we can recognize those distinctions. So we can keep things in their proper place, in their proper category. Boy, do we need these words today. (laughs) Aren't there people out there trying to say, this is not what it looks like? I am not what you think I am. I am confused and so I'm really this when I look like this. I'm not trying to belittle people who are looking through that cracked lens and think they've seen what is true, but their lens is cracked. And until God can straighten their vision out, they're going to be building their science and calling everybody else science deniers, building their science around faulty observation because somebody has verified what they think they saw and so now they believe what they want to believe instead of looking to see what is the truth. What has God made, not what do I want God to have made. That's a huge difference right there. And I've got to humble myself and say, this is what God's plan was right here. God is good. I've seen that several times repeated here. If I'll be willing to give this read a a fair shake, I'll see God's goodness on every single page here. I'll understand his goodness as he's reached out to me in my brokenness and said, I can heal you. It's got to be my way, but I can heal you and I can heal you better than you can ever imagine. He could heal lepers and make their skin restored as the flesh of a baby's. It's amazing to think about that. He created them as a baby. (laughs) He allowed the leprosy to attack them, but he can change that if they'll obey him. And that's what God wants for us. He's a God of order. He's a God who fills in the emptiness, the emptiness of space with all that light, the emptiness of the earth with all those plants, with teeming creatures, birds flying everywhere, giant sea creatures and small and all of the little things that are walking all over the face of the earth god made every single one of those to fill in the emptiness there's not a corner of this earth you can go that you're not going to find something there that god put there that's alive and teeming even as you begin to look through that microscope in a drop of water and you see a planet's worth of life in a drop of water it's amazing it's amazing this is the god that we serve whose nature it is to be orderly. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second, because when I bring this point up, and we look out our window, and we see the mess that this world is, we begin to blame God. How can you say God's a God of order? What I see is disorder. A funeral car just went by. (laughs) Somebody died. That's not order. That's disorder. I just heard about somebody who got shot. That's not order. That's disorder. A good friend of mine has cancer. That's not order. That's disorder. Why? Do you tell me God's a God of order and a God of love if all I see is disorder? We're going to find that when we get to chapter 3. When you think about God speaking, he's giving order through his commands as he speaks the universe into existence. And he orders that all plants be according to their kind and all animals be according to their kind and that the sun, moon, and stars follow their courses exactly and that the water cycle happens as he Planned it to happen. As he does all of that, as he gives order to his creation through his commands, the creation responds and does what he said. Except for the part we're going to see in our next lesson. There's one part of creation that says, hold on a second. I don't think that's the way it ought to be. <laughs> so if a military general is giving orders to all his soldiers, he's got them all lined up in a row, and he says, march, march, and they start marching, and he says, turn right, and one guy says, I don't think that's the way it should be. One guy. <laughs> decides to go straight, and everybody else turns right. What's going to (laughs) happen? Everybody this side of that guy is also going to be messed up. It's not just him. Leave him alone. Let him have his sin. Let him do what he wants. He's not affecting anybody. Yes, he is. One person's disorder, disobeying the command of order, one person's disorder messes up everybody that's off to this side of him, creates a gap for the ones he's supposed to be with on this side, creates confusion for those behind who are seeing, wait a second, he's going that way. What, What, did we miss the command? And look at the disorder that comes from one person disobeying. That's <laughs> what we're going to see when we get to chapter 3. I think God's grace is amazing and immense that the world is not in more disorder than it is. <laughs> because it's not just one person who chose not to do what God said. It's all of us, every single one of us, Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> not one of us is doing what he said to do. And yet, this world's still a world of order. You can find that. We're going to look some more at these things when we get in a little bit further in chapter 1, as we look at God creating man, and then tomorrow, God willing, we're going to see where things went terribly wrong. Thank you for your kind attention. We're going to have a few minutes of a break, and we'll pick up here in Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Afterward, we've got plenty of time if you want to come and talk to me, ask me questions. I'd be glad to talk about these things in more detail. But for our time's sake, we're going to, we're going to pull up stakes here at verse 25 for now.